Chapter Four, Part One of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Four, Painters, Part One. If background and tradition are needed for literature, they are even more needed for art and it is curiously worth noting that the background and traditions of england did not serve for her child across the sea in both literature and art so far as vital and significant achievement is concerned the young nation had to find itself and starting from a rude and rough beginning work its way upward of its own strength perhaps in that all of real importance in both literature and art which she can boast has been produced within the past ninety years little more than the threescore years and ten which the psalmist assigned as a span of a single life we do not mean to say that european influence is not plainly to be traced in both our art and literature there is a family resemblance so to speak as between a child and its parents and yet the child has an individuality of its own. In literature, Cooper, Poe, Hawthorne, Longfellow, Whitman are distinctively American, and, as we shall find, so are our masters of painting and sculpture. American art begins with John Singleton Copley. There had been daubers before him, as there were after, but Copley was the first man born in America who produced paintings which the world still contemplates with pleasure. Copley was born in Boston in 1737, his father dying shortly afterwards, and his mother supporting herself by keeping a tobacco shop. About 1746, she married again, most fortunately for her son, for her second husband was Peter Pelham, a mezzotint engraver of considerable merit, who gave the boy lessons in drawing. He proved an apt and precocious pupil, and by the time he had reached seventeen, had executed a number of portraits. His reputation steadily increased, and his income from his work was so satisfactory that he hesitated to try his fortunes in the larger field of London. Finally, in 1744, he sailed for England, and in the next year sent for his family to join him there. The opening of the Revolution persuaded him to stay in England, as there would be no demand for his work in America in so tumultuous a time. In London, his talents brought him ample patronage. His income enabled him to live the stately and dignified life he loved, so that, when the Revolution ended, there seemed no reason why he should abandon it for the crudities of Boston. He therefore continued in London until the end of his life, which came in 1815. Copley was a laborious and painstaking craftsman, setting down what he saw upon canvas with uncompromising sincerity. He worked very slowly, and many stories are told of how he tried the patience of his sitters. The result was a series of portraits which preserved the very spirit of the age. Serious, self-reliant, and capable, pompous and lacking humor. His later work has an atmosphere and repose which his early work lacks, but it is less important to America. His early portraits, which hang on the walls of so many Boston homes, and which Oliver Wendell Holmes called the titles of nobility of the old Boston families, are priceless documents of history. Copley was an artist from choice rather than necessity. He followed painting because it assured him a good livelihood, and he was a patient and painstaking craftsman. 
His life was serene and happy. He was without the tribulations, as he seems to have been without the enthusiasms of the great artist. Not so with his most famous contemporary, Benjamin West, whose life was filled to overflowing with the contrast and picturesqueness which Copley's lacked. West was born in 1738 at a little Pennsylvania frontier settlement. His parents were Quakers, and to the rigor and simplicity of frontier life were added those of that sect. But even these handicaps could not turn the boy aside from his vocation, for he was a born painter, if there ever was one. At the age of six, he tried to draw, with red and black ink, a likeness of a baby he had been set to watch. A year later, a party of friendly Indians, amused by some sketches of birds and leaves he showed them, taught him how to prepare the red and yellow colors which they used on their ornaments. His mother furnished some indigo, brushes were secured by clipping the family cat, no doubt greatly to its disgust, and with these crude materials he set to work. His success won him the present of a box of paints from a relative in Philadelphia. With that treasure, the boy lived and slept, and his mother finally discovering that he was running away from school, found him in the garret with a picture before him, which she refused to let him finish, lest he should spoil it. The painting was preserved to be exhibited sixty-six years later. The boy's talent was so evident, and his determination to be a painter so fixed, that his parents finally overcame their scruples against an occupation which they considered vain and useless, and sent him to Philadelphia. There he lived as frugally as possible, saving his money for a trip to Italy, and finally, at the age of twenty-two, set sail for Europe. His success there was immediate. He gained friends in the most influential circles, spent three years in study in Italy, and, going to London in 1764, received so many commissions that he decided to live there permanently. He wrote home for his father to join him, and to bring with him a Miss Shewell, to whom West was betrothed. He also wrote to the young lady, stating that his father would sail at a certain time, and asking her to join him. The letter fell into the hands of Miss Shewell's brother, who objected to West for some reason, and who promptly locked the girl in her room. Three friends of West's concluded that this outrage upon true love was not to be endured, smuggled a rope ladder to her, and got her out of the house and safely on board the vessel. These three friends were Benjamin Franklin, Francis Hopkinson, and William White the latter the first bishop of the American Episcopal Church, and the exploit was one which they were always proud to remember. Miss Shewell reached London safely, and the lovers were happily married. Meanwhile, West's success has been given a sudden impetus by his introduction to King George III. The two men became lifelong friends, and the king gave him commission after commission, culminating in a command to decorate the royal chapel at Windsor. His first reverse came when the king's mind began to fail. His commissions were cancelled and his pension stopped. He was deposed from the presidency of the Royal Academy, which he had founded, and was for a time in needy circumstances. But the tide soon turned, and his last years were marked by the production of a number of great paintings. He died at the age of 82 and was buried in St. Paul's Cathedral with splendid ceremonies so ended one of the most remarkable careers in history. West was perhaps more notable as a man than as an artist, for his fame as a painter has steadily declined. 
His greatest service to art was the example he set of painting historic groups in the costume of the period instead of in the vestments of the early Romans, as had been the custom. This innovation was made by him in his picture of the death of General Wolfe and created no little disturbance. His friends, including Reynolds, protested against such a desecration of tradition. Even the king questioned him, and West replied that the painter should be bound by truth as well as the historian, and to represent a group of English soldiers in the year 1758 as dressed in classic costume was absurd. After the picture was completed, Reynolds was the first to declare that West had won, and that his picture would occasion a revolution in art, as indeed it did. It is difficult to understand the habit of thought which insisted on clothing great men in garments they could never by any possibility have worn, yet it persisted until a comparatively late day. The most famous example in this country is Greenough's statue of Washington just outside the Capitol. One looks at it with a certain sense of shock, for the father of his country is sitting half-naked in a great armchair, with some drapery over his legs and a fold hanging over one shoulder. We shall have occasion in the next chapter to speak of it and of its maker. Another of West's services to art was the wholehearted way in which he extended a helping hand to any who needed it. He was always willing to give such instruction as he could, and among his pupils were at least four men who added not a little to American art, Charles Wilson Peale, Gilbert Stuart, John Trumbull, and Thomas Sully. Peale was born in Maryland in 1741, and was among other things a saddler, a coachmaker, a clockmaker, and a silversmith. He finally decided to add painting to his other accomplishments, so he secured some painting materials and a book of instructions and set to work. In 1770, a number of gentlemen of Annapolis furnished him with enough money to go to England, a loan which he promised to repay with pictures upon his return. West received him kindly, and when Peel's money gave out, as it soon did, welcomed him into his own house. Peel remained in London for four years, returning to America in time to join Washington as a captain of volunteers and to take part in the battles of Trenton and Germantown. After the war, he continued painting, but in 1801, his mind, always alert for new experiences, was led away in a strange direction. The bones of a mammoth were discovered in Ulster County, New York, and Peel secured possession of them had them taken to Philadelphia, and started a museum. It rapidly increased in size, for all sorts of curiosities poured in upon him, and he began a series of lectures on natural history, which, whether learned or not, proved so interesting that large and distinguished audiences gathered to hear him. In 1805, he founded the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, the oldest and most flourishing institution of the kind in the country. He lived to a hale old age, never having known sickness, and dying as the result of incautious exposure. Like West, his life is more interesting than his work, for while he painted fairly good portraits, they were the work rather of a skilled craftsman than of an artist. The second of West's pupils, whom we have mentioned, Gilbert Stuart, was by far the greatest of the earlier artists. He was born near Newport, Rhode Island in 1755. His father being a Jacobite refugee from Scotland, he began to paint at an early age, worked faithfully at drawing, 
and finally, at the age of nineteen, began portrait painting in earnest. One of his first pictures was a striking example of a remarkable characteristic, the power of visual memory, which he retained through his whole life. His grandmother had died five or six years before, but he painted a portrait of her, producing a striking a likeness that it immediately brought him orders for others. But Newport had grown distasteful to him, and in 1775 he started for London. How he got there is not certainly known, but get there he did, without money or friends or much hope of making either, and for three years lived a precarious life, earning a little money, borrowing what he could, twice imprisoned for debt, and with it all so gay and brilliant and talented that those he wronged most loved him most. Finally, he was introduced to Benjamin West, and found in him an invaluable friend and patron. For nearly four years, Stuart worked as West's student and assistant, steadily improving in drawing, developing a technique of astonishing merit, and, more than that, one that was all his own. His portrait soon attracted attention, and at the end of a few years he was earning a large income. But he squandered it so recklessly that he was finally forced to flee to Ireland to escape his creditors. They pursued him, threw him into prison, and the legend is that he painted most of the Irish aristocracy in his cell in the Dublin jail. At last, in 1792, he returned to America, animated by a desire to paint a portrait of Washington. Arrangements for a sitting were made, but it is related that Stuart, although he had painted many famous men and was at ease in most society, found himself strangely embarrassed in Washington's presence. The president was kindly and courteous, but the portrait was a failure. He tried again, and produced the portrait which remains to this day the accepted likeness of the first American. You will find it as the frontispiece to men of action, and it is worth examining closely, for it is an example of art rarely surpassed, as well as a remarkable portrait of our most remarkable citizen. Gilbert Stuart still holds his place among the greatest of American portrait painters. His heads, painted simply and without artifice, and yet with high imagination, are unsurpassed. They possess insight. They accomplish that greatest of all tasks, the delineation of character. Stuart's portraits, as every portrait must, to be truly great, show not only how his sitters looked, but what they were. Art can accomplish no more than that. The anecdotes which are told of him are innumerable, and most of them have to do with his hot temper, which grew hotter and hotter as his years increased, and he became more and more a public character. One day, a loving husband, whose wife Stuart had put on canvas in an unusually uncompromising way, complained that the portrait did not do her justice. "'What an infernal business is this of a portrait painter!' Stuart cried, at last, his patience giving way. You bring him a potato and expect him to paint you a peach. But look at his portrait at the beginning of this chapter, and you will see a witty and kindly old gentleman, as well as an irascible one. John Trumbull was a student of West's at the same time that Stuart was. He was a year younger, and was a son of that Jonathan Trumbull, afterwards governor of Connecticut, whose title of Brother Jonathan, given him by Washington, became afterwards a sort of national nickname. He was an infant prodigy, graduating from Harvard at an age when most boys were entering, 
and afterwards going to Boston to take lessons from Copley. The outbreak of the Revolution stopped his studies. He enlisted in the Army, won rapid promotion, and finally resigned in a huff because he thought his commission as colonel incorrectly dated. In 1780, he sailed for France, on his way to London, met Benjamin Franklin in Paris, and from him secured a letter of introduction to Benjamin West, who welcomed him with his unfailing cordiality. But he had scarcely commenced his studies when he was arrested and thrown into prison. The reason was the arrest and execution at New York of Major Andre, who was captured with Benedict Arnold's treasonable correspondence hidden in his boot, and who was hanged as a spy. Knowing that Trumbull had been an officer in the American army, and anxious to avenge André's death, the king ordered his arrest, but West interceded for him and secured his release several weeks later. Warned that England was unsafe for him, Trumbull returned to America and remained there until after the close of the Revolution. The beginning of 1784 saw him again in London, at work on his two famous paintings, The Battle of Bunker Hill and The Death of General Montgomery and from that time until his death he was occupied almost exclusively with the painting of pictures illustrating events in american history the surrender of cornwallis the battle of princeton the capture of the hessians at trenton to mention only three in eighteen sixteen he received a commission to paint four of the eight commemorative pictures in the capitol at washington and completed the last one eight years later this being his last important work Trumbull is in no respect to be compared with Gilbert Stuart, but his work was done with a painstaking accuracy which makes it valuable as a historical document. For the personages of his pictures, he painted a great number of miniatures from life which, in many cases, are the only surviving presentments of some of the most prominent men of the time. After Gilbert Stuart, Thomas Sully was by far the greatest of the men who studied in West's studio. Stuart aside, there was no American painter of the day to equal him. He was born in England in 1783, but was brought to this country by his parents at the age of nine. The Sullys were actors of some talent, and secured an engagement at Charleston, South Carolina, and there the boy was placed first in school, and then in the office of an insurance broker. He spent so much time making sketches that his employer decided he was destined for art and not for business, and secured another clerk. Young Sully thoroughly agreed with this and started out to be an artist. He had no money, nor means of earning any, but he managed to secure some desultory instruction, and this, added to his native talent, enabled him to begin to paint portraits for which uncritical persons were willing to pay. But it was a hard road and none was more conscious of his deficiency than himself. He knew that he needed training, and finally started for England with a purse of $400 in his pocket, which had been subscribed by friends who were each to be repaid by a copy of an old master. Arrived at London, Sully at once got himself introduced to Benjamin West, who received him like a father, admitted him to his studio, and aided him in many ways he remained there painting by day drawing by night studying anatomy in every spare moment and living on bread and potatoes and water in order to make his money last as long as possible at the end of nine months it was gone and he was forced to return to america 
but those nine months of study had given him just what he needed and his talent soon gained recognition orders poured in upon him at good prices and though his prosperity afterwards dwindled somewhat he never again experienced the pangs of poverty he made philadelphia his home and for nearly half a century occupied a house on chestnut street which had been built for him by stephen gerard his work is in every way worthy of respect firm and serious and rich with a warm and mellow color benjamin west had many other pupils indeed his studio was a sort of incubator for american artists but none of them won any permanent fame one washington alston achieved considerable contemporary reputation but it seems to have resulted more from his own winning personality than from his work he possessed a charm which fairly dazzled all who met him notably coleridge and washington irving his smaller canvases graceful figures or heads to which he attached little importance are more admired to-day than his more ambitious ones another pupil was john vanderlyn of dutch stock as his name shows a protege of aaron burr and the painter of the best-known portrait of his daughter theodosia as well as of burr himself when burr an outcast in fortune and men's eyes fled to paris vanderlyn who had made some reputation there was able to repay to some extent the kindness which burr had shown him his work shows care and serious thought but his last years were embittered by the indifference of the public and he died in want that versatile genius and hale old man charles wilson peel to whom we have already referred had many children and he christened them with most distinguished names so that in the end he could boast himself the father of raphael rembrandt rubens and titian alas that the name does not make the man only one of them rembrandt achieved any distinction in art and that but a faint and far-off reflection of the master whose name he bore like his father he was interested in many things besides his art he conducted a museum at baltimore introduced illuminating gas there wrote voluminous memoirs and living until eighteen sixty became a sort of dean of the profession an example of his work will be found in men of action the likeness of thomas jefferson given there being a reproduction from a portrait painted by him his portraits are not held in high estimation at the present day for while correct enough in drawing they show little insight we have come to demand something more than mechanical skill and that something more which makes the artist and divides him from the artisan is exactly what rembrandt peel did not possess it is interesting too to note that one of the most promising painters of the time was s f b morse in the yale school of fine arts hangs a portrait of mrs de forest and in the new york city hall one of lafayette both of them from his brush and both not unworthy the best traditions of american art but a chance conversation about electricity turned his thoughts in that direction and he abandoned painting for invention the result being the electric telegraph we shall speak of him further in the chapter on inventors the passing of washington alston and his group marked the end of benjamin west's influence and in a way of english influence on american painting it marked too a lapse in interest for it was a long time before it found for itself an adequate mode of expression there are however two or three men of the period whom we must mention 
not so much because of their achievements, which had little significance, as because of their remarkable and inspiring lives. Chester Harding, reared on the New York frontier, a typical backwoodsman, by turns a peddler, a tavern keeper, and house painter, and a failure at all of them, got so deeply in debt that he ran away to Pittsburgh to escape his creditors. And there, to his amazement, one day saw an itinerant painter painting a portrait. Before that, he had secured work of some sort, and his wife had joined him. Filled with admiration for the artist's work, he procured a board and some paint and sat down to paint a portrait of his wife. He actually did produce a likeness, and, delighted at the result, practiced a while longer, and then, proceeding to Paris, Kentucky, perhaps through some association of the name with the great art center of Europe, boldly announced himself as a portrait painter and got about a hundred people to pay him twenty-five dollars apiece to paint them. He spent some time at Cincinnati, and got as far west as St. Louis, where he journeyed nearly a hundred miles to find Daniel Boone living in his long cabin on the Missouri land, and painted the portrait of that old pioneer, which is reproduced in Men of Action. Boone was at that time ninety years of age, and Harding found him living almost alone, roasting a piece of venison on the end of his ramrod, as had been his custom all his life. One of the most surprising things in the history of American art is the facility with which men of all trades turn to portrait painting, apparently as a last resort, and manage to make a living at it. During the first half of the last century, the country seems to have been overrun with wandering portrait painters, whose only equipment for the art was some paint and a bundle of brushes. They had, for the most part, no training and that anyone, in a time when money was scarce and hardly earned, should have paid it out for the wretched daubs these men produced is a great mystery. But they did pay it out, and, as we have seen, Harding earned no less than $2,500 in a comparatively short time. With such of this money as he had been able to save, he went to Philadelphia and spent two months in study there. Then he returned to his old home, and astonished his neighbors by paying his debts. He astonished them still more when they found he was making money by painting portraits, for which he now charged forty dollars each, and his aged grandfather felt obliged to protest. Chester, he said, having called him aside so that none could overhear, I want to speak to you about your present mode of life. I think no better than swindling to charge forty dollars for one of those effigies. Now I want you to give up this way of living and settle down on a farm and become a respectable man. However excellent this advice may have been, Chester had gone too far to heed it. He had decided to go to England, but he stayed in America long enough to earn money to buy a farm for his parents and to settle his own family at Northampton. This duty accomplished, he set sail for London, and his success there was immediate due as much to his remarkable personality as to his work. He returned to America in 1826, and spent the rest of his life here painting most of the political leaders of the country. It has been said of his portraits that his heads are as solid as iron, and his coats as uncompromising as tin, while his faces shine like burnished platters. Remarkable as Harding's story is, it is no more so than that of many of his contemporaries. Francis Alexander, for instance, born in Connecticut in 1800, a farm boy and afterwards a schoolteacher, never attempted painting until he was over twenty. 
Then one day, having caught a pickerel, its beauty reminded him of a box of watercolors a boy had left him, and he attempted to paint the fish, with such success that he was filled with amazement and delight. He practiced a while longer, decorating the whitewashed walls of a room with rude landscapes filled with cattle, horses, sheep, hogs, and chickens. All the neighbors came to see his work and marveled at it, though none of them cared to have his house similarly decorated. But finally, one of them offered Alexander five dollars if he would paint a full-length portrait of a child. Other orders followed, and finally, with sixty dollars in his pocket, he started for New York. Some years later, he sought Gilbert Stewart at Boston, got some systematic instruction, and ended by painting very passable portraits. Some amusing stories are told of the persistency with which he hunted for orders. In 1842, Charles Dickens visited America for the first time, and while his ship was yet out of sight of land, the pilot clambered on board, and after him Alexander, who begged the great novelist for the privilege of painting his portrait. Dickens, amused at his enterprise, consented, and Alexander's studio, during the sittings, became the center of literary Boston. It is a curious commentary upon Alexander's development that, after a trip or two abroad, he professed to find the crudities of his native land unbearable and spent his last years in Italy. End of chapter 4, part 1 Recording by William Tomko